0: Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. It's great you're watching today. My name is Matt and this has been prepared for Sunday, the 21st of January, 2024. As we begin, let's prepare our hearts by hearing this word of scripture from Psalm 66. All the earth worships you, O Lord Most High. Sing praises to you and worships your holy name. Well, we indeed have a holy God worthy of all our praises, and so we begin our time together in praise of his name.
1: Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, King of creation. Oh, my soul. you
0: Come to the ministry of God's word now and our Bible readings begin in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel as we continue our series. Today we're looking at chapters 4 through to 7, but you might like just to read chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 and then chapter 5 verses 1 through to 8. Then our psalm for today is Psalm 24 and our New Testament passage is 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 6 and then 11 through to 13. Uh, Those will appear on the screen in a moment, but pause the video now, have a read through, especially of those parts in 1 Samuel 4 through to 7, and then we'll come back and think about them together in a moment. Well, let's pray as we think about God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak into our hearts and lives at this time. Uh, Let this be a fruitful time for us. Speak to us by your spirit. uh, Let us have a greater view of who you are. Amen. Well, where is the glory of God in our lives? As I think about the state of Christianity in our Western world, I can't help but feel that so often... We just treat God far too lightly. So there seems to be a lack of reverence. Uh, treating him perhaps like he's some kind of back pocket God. He's there if we need him, but otherwise our lives don't look that different Monday through to Friday. Uh, we don't live in a way that shines out the glory of Jesus in our lives. For the most part, we look much like everyone else around us. Now, I don't put, simply put that out there for each of us to feel guilty of it. Uh, I've been reflecting back on my life in the last week as well and the ways that that has been true for me. And so that is where 1 Samuel 4 through to 7 is such a helpful word for us today because if we listen to God well here, uh, it won't allow us to sit comfortably treating God lightly. And so by the time we finish here in, in 4 through to 7 today, I hope that together, no matter where we are in our place, in our relationship with God, we will be people who hold him in high regard, not just with our heads though, but in our hearts as well. As people who long to live lives that speak of the holiness of a God who loves us so dearly. Right, That's what I hope for us today. And so we're in 1 Samuel 4 through to 7. But to recap, where are we in, in Samuel? Well, remember Samuel basically follows straight on from the book of Judges and the period of judges in Israel's history, and the book of Judges you might remember. It finishes with that one line that summarizes how things are going in Israel. In those days, Israel had no king; everyone did as they saw fit. And for God's people, ancient Israel, things were in bad shape; they're in a bad way. Last week, though, we saw a bit of a shift. Chapter three, we saw a shift as God begins to again speak to His people through the young Samuel. So that by the end of the chapter, the word of the Lord is no longer rare among them. And we were told, chapter 3, verse 19, you can see it if you've got the Bible in front of you. We were told there, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, they recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And so the Lord... He revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. That's what we finished last week. But then chapter 4, we get here, and it shows us that those last few really positive words from chapter 3, they shouldn't be seen like a sort of happily ever after kind of moment. There's a bit more going on here than that. And so, take a look with me. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We see, now the Israelites went out, To fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread. Israel was defeated by the Philistines. Who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. this is a big loss. And for ancient Israel. It would lead to even bigger theological questions. I mean after all. Entering the land Israel were. Uh, They had God's promise of victory over their enemies And so you might ask What is going on And they do in verse 3 The elders of Israel asked Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today Before the Philistines So what's going on here Well Although they might be wondering uh, If you've been with us over the last two weeks uh, You'll know exactly why God Has allowed his people to be defeated In battle like this Remember those sons of Eli? We met them chapter 2 and chapter 3 last week. And Eli's sons give us a picture of just how wicked things are within God's people themselves. Phineas and Hophni, the two sons of the high priest, the ones who are meant to be leading the people, know they are abusing the sacrifices of God and sexually taking advantage of the women who came to worship. And That's why last week we heard God say to young Samuel, chapter 3, verse 11, Behold! I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Okay, God promises judgment that would cause Israel to be gripped by fear. But here, chapter 4, Israel's leaders, they haven't made that connection. They're not sure why they're being defeated in battle, but they have a solution anyway. Second half of verse 3, have a look with me. They say, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant From Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. Now, really simply, the Ark of the Covenant of God—it functions as a kind of symbol of God's presence among His people. It's almost like God's throne, if you will. The Ark's meant to reside in the tent of the Lord as well. The idea is, where the Ark resides, that is where God's glory is. Rather than going to God in repentance for their wickedness and rather than consulting him or his prophets, the leaders of Israel, they decide, hey, let's march out this symbol of God's presence as if it's some kind of, you know, good luck token. They're trying to manipulate the God of the universe to act on their behalf, treating him perhaps like he's some kind of trump card. And we're reminded again, we're reminded again of that situation. In those days, Israel had no king Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel are playing fast and loose with God, treating him in whatever way seems best to them. And to add injury to insult, do you notice here who's going out with the ark? Second half of verse 4. It's Eli's two scoundrel sons. We're told Hophni and Phinehas went there with the ark of the covenant of God. And knowing what they're like, you couldn't ask for two less suitable people. It feels like a joke, like they're making a mockery of this. In verse 5, the ark is then paraded through the camp. And all of Israel, they raise a shout as if victory is somehow certain. They're treating God like he's a weapon to wield. As if he's some kind of almost a fire breathing dragon, but they've got him by the collar. They can point him where they want. They can use him for their own advantage. But, verse 10, The Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Verse 11, the ark of of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Not only that, in the next little section, we didn't read it, but We're told Eli, the old, blind, useless priest, he hears this news and he falls off his chair on the ground and dies. But then also, Phineas' wife, the wife of one of those two wicked scoundrels who was sexually abusing women, she goes goes into labor, gives birth to a son and she, too, dies. But not before naming him. Verse 21. She names him Ichabod, which literally means no glory. And why did she do that, we're told? Because the glory, she said, has has departed from Israel. God's people, they are defeated, they are broken. The line of priests are dying. And God's symbol of his presence is gone. God's glory has departed Israel. It's taken away. And this is a devastating reality for God's people. But it hasn't just happened by chance. Now, this is God's judgment on a people who are taking him far too lightly, who are presuming on him, who are at the same time, though, are letting sin go unchecked in their lives. And for us, it's worth stopping and asking at this point, in what ways are we in danger of being like Israel in our lives? How might we be taking God for granted and presuming on him? Are you presuming that he'll be there for you? and yet still letting sin go unchecked in your life? Do we perhaps fall into the temptation of having a kind of mindset whereby we think we can manipulate God, maybe even just small ways, but we secure God's blessings if we've done enough, if, we've, if our church attendance is good enough, if our Bible reading is up, if our giving is up, or whatever else you do, do we think that we can manipulate God in those kind of ways? Or like Israel? Can we be found guilty of treating God sometimes like he's a good luck charm? Treating him like a back pocket kind of God. But a part of our life that remains mostly hidden throughout the week, but we pull him out when we really want something from him in prayer. Now, I've been asking these kind of questions of of myself in the last week, as I've been preparing and reading this. And as I was driving on the highway through the week, I had this moment that clicked for me. There's this one time in my life where I turned to God constantly in fervent prayer for what's a relatively short period of time and it's it's disproportionate to the to the way i pray through the rest of my my day or week and i've always kind of thought that hey i'm really depending on god at this time but actually on on reflection i think i'm dangerously close to treating god like he's like he's a back pocket kind of god the sort of way that israel treated god as they marched him out into into the battlefield when they needed him for something. And so, here's three good questions for us to take into the week and actually wrestle with. Where else in our lives are we treating God far too lightly? Where are we presuming on God and yet overlooking it, willful sin that's still in our lives? Where are we treating him like a back pocket sort of God? Those are good questions to ask, and I think if we were to ask themselves honestly, for ask them honestly of ourselves, then they would be questions that are really hard for our hearts to answer, or at least hard for them to answer honestly. But nonetheless, good questions for us. Now, as we keep reading, we see that the Israelites, God's people, they're not the only ones to take. God and his glory lightly because chapter 5 tells us how the Philistines after defeating the Israelites they marched the ark of the Lord into the temple of Dagon one of their gods and they're not doing that because they don't know where else to put it no no this is a deliberate act it's an act that's meant to humiliate it's a way of saying look our God has had victory over your God how our God is stronger than yours our God is better than yours we have captured your weak wussy God. But the irony is that the next morning, the picture is, is reversed because the people come out and they find that the, the statue of Dagon, he's face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And it's a bit of a comical scene because the people, what do they do? They, they pick Dagon back up. They have to support him. They, they dust him off. They, they clean him up. But the next morning again, Dagon's face down, this time with his hands and head broken clean off. And as we keep reading, we find that in contrast to Dagon, who's in the dirt, handless. We see that the one whose name belongs to the ark was not handless. In fact, we're told in verse 6 of chapter 5, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. God has not been defeated. He is winning battles on his own, unaided by any kind of human might. And the Philistines now, they begin to realize that wherever they send the ark, wherever it goes, people are getting sick and dying. And so chapter five, verse 11. So they call together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. And so for a while, they pass the ark of the Lord around like a hot potato. But they come to realize that this is not a God that you can play fast and loose with. You can try and go on celebrating your defeat of this God but things are not going to go well for you in the long run. Now, for us, we can look around at our at the world around us and see the way that much of our society is celebrating what might look like a, a victory over God and his people. Celebrating in the way that Bibles and scripture in school are being removed in many places. Celebrating the way that God's design for marriage and sexuality, it's been thrown off in many of our social structures. On celebrating the way that we have freedom to kill and put an end to human life. Human life, whether it's just at the beginning or, or right near the end. When it looks like God has been defeated in our culture, this is a word that I need to hear. I need to remember that in the end, it'll be clear to all that Dagon is headless and handless, that God will put all things right in the end, that in the end, as Philippians 2 tells us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is the reality that this should remind me of, that God has his victory, that before God, no one will stand. And so, in the first half of chapter 6, there we see the Philistines are acting quickly to throw off, to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant, to send it back to Israel. And they do so, sending it back with a guilt offering, acknowledging that they've defied God and that there's a debt that must be paid. And so the Ark goes to Israel. And there's now a reversal of Ichabod. There's a reversal. The glory of God is no longer gone. It's returned to God's people. And it would be nice if the story finished there. Now, we've learnt that the Israelites, they shouldn't presume on the power of God and treat him lightly. We've learned that God's enemies, they shouldn't take him lightly and defy his power. But there's more. Now, for me, growing up as a child, uh, All of Grandma's side of the family. We would come together often to have a big lunch at her place many times in the year. And so at Grandma's house, there was about 10 or so of us grandkids having an absolute ball, running around, hide and seek, chasing, you name it. But we knew that whenever we went past Grandma's glass cabinet, we needed to slow down. We needed to be really careful. Uh, I wonder if your grandma or your mother had a, a glass cabinet like that. If you do, you know what I'm talking about. It's the kind of thing you knew that if you bumped it, if you, heaven forbid, knocked something off it and it broke, you knew how much trouble you were going to be in. You knew that even if you were just to reach out and and touch things, grab things off it, the glassware or the the photos or the china, you knew that that was a massive overstep because of how precious it was. And that doesn't come close to the overstep we see now in verse 19 of chapter 6. Verse 19, God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Why would you do it? Why would you do it after everything we've just seen, after seeing people take God lightly and suffer consequences? Why would you do it knowing that only the high priest was meant to go near and even touch this thing? But now they're taking their own initiative just to open things up and have a look around. Check it out. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what they thought right. If God is not to be mocked and ridiculed in the pagan land, taken lightly there, God is not to be taken lightly in Israel either. And it leads the people to ask the most significant question in our passages here. You can see it there in verse 20. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And the truth is that by ourselves, no one can stand in the presence of our holy God. He is too pure. We are too tainted by sin. As the the prophet Habakkuk says, God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. That's why for Israel, the tabernacle or later the temple was the place to come and worship God, was the place where where God's presence was confined to. It was why they needed a priest to go meet to mediate between them and God. God set things up this way to limit access to him. Because for a sinful people, our sin bars us off from God. Put simply, it is not safe For a sinful people, for an unholy people, to come into the presence of a holy God. For us, it would be like flying into the sun. In chapter 7, the people, they regain a little bit of a picture of God's holiness. They realize they need to come and turn back to God. And so Samuel, he re-enters the scene. He's been absent so far. He re-enters the scene at this point, and he begins interceding for them. Acting not only as a prophet speaking God's word to them, but now acting as a priest as well, one who offers a sacrifice on their behalf. As you can see in chapter 7, verse 9, Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. Israel needed a mediator between them and God. And in that way, uh, we are not unlike them. Because of our sin, we too need someone to intercede on our behalf. Now, In 1 Samuel 7, we see Samuel acting as a prophet, offering the, the sacrifice of a young lamb for the people's sin. It's a sacrifice that's like other sacrifices. Ultimately, it's just a shadow. It's something that can never fully deal with sin it's something that would need to be repeated again and again for the people and actually for Samuel acting as the the priest and the sacrifice he offers both of these things are shadows that find their fulfillment only in the Lord Jesus because in in Jesus we have a greater mediator in Jesus we have a greater sacrifice, one that means that we are cleansed once and for all. Now, reflecting on the, the, the practice of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, day after day, the priest stands and he performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, and he also says, But we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And he says then, Jesus is our great high priest, the great high priest over the household of God. This means that if you trust Jesus, then you can have confidence right now to stand before God. We can draw near God with the full assurance that our faith brings. Knowing that when we stand with Jesus, then God sees us as a holy people washed clean already because of Jesus' blood. And so then, if that's who we are, how ought we to live? Well, let's turn once more to 1 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the, the Ashereths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. Christian readers of one Samuel need to hear this, as we remember the as we remember the way that Israel, they presumed on God when they had the Ark. We cannot put our trust in God's kindness towards us in Jesus and at the same time, ignore God's demand for holiness in our lives. And so as we follow Jesus, we need to resist the temptation to continue treating God far too lightly. And I know that for us, like the Israelites, there'll be things that we need to get rid of from our lives as we live in a way that truly honors and glorifies him. And we don't do that so that we can be acceptable to God, but because he has already washed us clean by the blood of Jesus. And so with that, would you join me in prayer now, praying that the weight of God's glory that we see here in 1 Samuel, that it wouldn't be lost on us, but that it would impact our lives as we live them under our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you're a God who speaks to us through your word, Father, you show us who you are and who we are so that we might come humbly before you and that we might in Jesus find new life. Uh, Father, we confess that there are times in our lives when we get this wrong and we've taken you far too lightly when we've presumed on you. And we pray that you would forgive us in these times. Uh, Heavenly Father, help us uh, to grow as people who belong to you, people who are holy, uh, people who are, to live as people who are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Our Father, thank you that Jesus is our exalted High Priest, the one who continually intercedes for us and has made peace for us, uh, peace for us before you by his blood. Our Father, we long for the day, that day when every knee will be bowed before him, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. And Father, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, and we ask that while we wait, that you would help us by your Spirit to live lives that honour. And glorify you, that don't take you lightly, but acknowledge you as Lord of all. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our mighty Mediator and Saviour. Amen. Well, we go now to another time of praise.
1: good, it's ever faithful Worth more than gold The heart's delight Your word gives life To all who hear and obey Your word enjoys forever Your word is true It never changes it formed the earth, sustains it still. Your word defends, providing refuge and strength. Your word endures forever. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Your word is a light unto my path. My joy and my song Your word enjoys forever Your word transforms It lifts the humble Rebukes the proud Protects the poor Your word is. Love
0: these words of encouragement from Peter uh, in his first letter, uh, words that are calling for lives to reflect the gospel truths that we have. In 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, Do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Friends, we have a holy God, a God who who is full of love, uh, a God who has shown us that in Jesus. And so may we now as we go live lives that are reflective of that. Have a great and blessed week. We'll see you next time.